Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A few weekends ago, Lancaster Emergency Services responded to 65 drug overdoses. None were fatal. Officials attribute the overdoses to synthetic marijuana, commonly called K2 or spice. Synthetic marijuana typically comprises of a pile of shredded leaves sprayed down with a combination of chemicals. The desired effect is a product that mimics the effects of real marijuana. In reality, it is an extremely dangerous combination of chemicals to ingest and often results in hallucinations, erratic and violent behavior, and physical effects like elevated heart rate and seizures. We'll talk more about all those things in just a moment. Our guest today, Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. District Attorney Stedman, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me and, and covering this important issue. And Special Agent Patrick Trainer of the DEA's Philadelphia Field Division. Uh, tra- Agent Trainer, thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Let me uh, tell our listeners that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Craig Stebbin, let me start with you. For the past two years, we focused almost exclusively on heroin and prescription drugs because the number of overdose deaths uh, was exploding across the country. Then, earlier this month, we hear about more than Four dozen overdoses involving synthetic marijuana. Was it a surprise to you? Well, that, the numbers were were shocking, you know, for us. But I think you know you do hit on something. Is that heroin has kind of uh, overtaken the the media coverage and and people's attention? But this spice was starting in 2013, 2014, starting to really come up, and and even a little bit before that. And then just nobody's really talked about it since then. And just to update you, I got some more accurate numbers. It's actually a little bit worse. And this was just from one of the the EMT responders. It was actually 70 overdoses um, for that weekend. And for that whole week up until July 17th, it was 160 responses from from the one EMT provider alone. So I'm sure it was actually more than that across the county. It's just really shocking numbers. So while heroin and prescription drugs were getting all the attention. Were there still overdoses from synthetic marijuana going on in Lancaster County? Yeah, we still, we had sort of three spike zones over the last couple of years. It was early 2015, early 2016, and of course, you know, just a couple a couple weeks ago here. It, it, it comes in waves. I think it depends on um, some, of, some of the batches. It's definitely been, been cyclical for us. So describe that weekend, if you will. Well, I just uh, the the director for for Lamsa kept emailing me throughout the the weekend. He even started it on Friday and just saying, "Look at how many we've had already." Um, and and he he throughout the whole week, it was just unbelievable as the number just kept going up and up and up. It's it's something that I've never seen. Obviously, it had his attention to do it. And and you think about the the. the taxing of the resources of those medical service providers, those first responders who are supposed to be there, you know, there for everybody when there's an accident or a heart attack or, you know, family member in need, they're responding 160 times in one week to, to overdoses to an illegal substance. I mean, it, it is really, really stretching their resources and ability to provide coverage to, you know, the law-abiding people. And now they have to do it. The first priority is to save lives, but um, there's, a, there's a stress on, the, on them. And that's just, that's just their response. Then the, the uh, emergency rooms and those medical professionals have to deal with it. And, and there's really, as I understand it, there's really no antidote for this stuff. You just have to wear, wait till it wears off. And during that time, there it depends on the person and it depends on the, the actual batch, but it's mind-altering. Um, and it can be extremely dangerous not only to the person, but the first responders and anybody dealing with that person. We, um, you know, it, it certainly puts everybody at risk. Everybody's in danger when somebody's using this. So did the emergency responders and do the police know 
what's going on? I mean, do they recognize that this person is overdosing from K2, synthetic marijuana, rather than a prescription drug or uh, heroin? Well, I think that's you know it's difficult for them to, to say initially um, as, as to what exactly they're dealing with. You know, the circumstances of their call, I think it has to be case by case. These guys are outstanding; they know what they're doing, but they have to approach. Particularly this stage, we talk about heroin, but you talk about fentanyl could be involved. They could actually die by touching um, uh, fentanyl, uh, and you know we've seen some some risks to our first responders there. So they have to approach with caution. I think the you know the the distinction with the, with the spice is is the mind-altering aspects of it and, and the, you know, hallucinations. And they probably can, can determine fairly quickly. Um, and, but but they, we've had people who are extremely violent, and they have to be actually, they have to restrain them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the hot, at the emergency rooms, and we're going to talk about the effects in in just a moment. But uh, going back to that weekend, and you said that uh, there have been several spikes. Why all at once? Uh, if you go back a few weeks, why did this happen over this weekend all at once? And I don't know whether you've had any OD since, but uh, not the spike like you had a few weeks ago. Right. I mean, typically when we have the, the cyclical uh, spikes like that, it, it's often related to one. Batch and a, and a, a provider who who has provided a, um, and, and it's distributed widespread and people of course they're not waiting to use this stuff um, when they get it they use it and and uh, that's that's the the typical explanation for why you see a spike. So Patrick Trainer with DEA and uh, you're with the Philadelphia field office. Now what area does your field office cover? Well, I, again, with the DEA, we're a federal law enforcement agency, and our, our office is responsible uh, for covering the states of Pennsylvania and Delaware, Scott. Okay. I was just wondering. I knew that uh, as a federal office that uh, you, you had a, a region uh, to cover. So what you're hearing about Lancaster County or what you did hear about Lancaster County a few weeks ago, is that typical, That uh, what you've seen throughout Pennsylvania and Delaware? No, it's not. And much like uh, like District Attorney Stedman said, I've heard numbers as high as uh, that weekend, um, and again, as far as high as 125 overdoses over a several-day period. No, that is not uh, typical at all. That is, uh, that is a, uh, a, a very, very concerning number indeed. And I, and I certainly would agree with what, uh, with what Mr. Stedman said, that that would be indicative of a, uh, uh, of a particularly uh, potent patch uh, of uh, of uh, K2 that's around. You, ha- you have to remember, um, and again, you, you did a very, very good job ex- you know, describing this uh, prior, to the, prior to us coming on air, but a lot of these drugs are manufactured in, uh, in rogue laboratories in China or overseas where there's absolutely no quality control at all. Um, we, uh, we at DEA have been aware um, of drugs like K2 and Spice uh, for a long time now, and we work very hard to track and schedule uh, and schedule the precursor chemicals that are used to manufacture these drugs. Um, and right now, I believe at last count, the library uh, uh, the library uh, is up to several hundred different variations um, of uh, of K2 that that we have seen. Um, in the United States over the past probably say ten years. So again, we we would agree that that uh, that that would be indicative of a particularly uh, potent batch. Well, okay, several hundred. I have to say that surprised me. I did not realize that uh, there were that many combinations. But typically, what are some of the chemicals that do go into the manufacture of uh, synthetic marijuana? Well, it's any uh, again. It's it's what it is is. Um, uh, K2 is, is its synthetic form of THC, which is the active psycho, uh, psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. Uh, I'd, I'd rather not get into the air. Well, how to make it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand <laughs> yeah, that. Chemicals, yeah. chemicals are used, but, but, uh, uh, but again, what, what we do in the United uh, States is when, when we learn of a, uh, of, a, of a substance that we believe uh, is posing uh, a danger or a threat to the community, we, we schedule it. In order for us to schedule it, we have to define it, okay? Um, and again, and I'll just use a simple analogy, 
um, water is H2O. It's been H2O uh, for hundreds of years, <laughs> thousands of years, um, and it'll be it'll be the same long uh, long after uh, we're we're all gone. Uh, the same thing for heroin. The chemical name for heroin is diacetylmorphine, and again, that has a very specific chemical signature that can be identified uh, uh, by laboratories across the country. Uh, we don't see that with K2. Um, what happens is we'll schedule, and again, we have labs that continually alter the precursor chemicals uh, in order to stay ahead of, of either state or federal laws that restrict it. So it's very, uh, it's very difficult to uh, uh, to track it and to say specifically uh, what what uh, precursors are used to manufacture it because it's constantly changing and with that change uh, we see what what obviously happened in Lancaster County uh, uh, earlier uh, earlier this month where a hundred where literally a hundred and twenty five or a hundred and seventy people are taken to a uh, the hospital emergency room and that's again that's pretty indicative of uh, uh, of uh, Again, a powerful batch. So uh, we've been using the term K2 spice interchangeably. Are they the same thing? Yes, yes. That's just a nickname, uh, a nickname for it. Um, again, we, you know, chemically we would say it's a synthetic cannabinoid, uh, but again, it, it's they are the uh, they are the same thing. It's also they've also been referred to as bath salts. Uh, again, they're often which are often sold uh, at head shops or, or smoke shops, uh, again, under the innocuous name of a bath salt, um, and again, not to be used for human consumption. Um, but again, that, that's, uh, that, that's a way to, uh, uh, to market it and also to avoid, uh, uh, to avoid uh, import laws and coming into the country. Let's take a phone call from Nikki in Hershey. Nikki, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. So, um... I'm an ER nurse, and what I, I just want to be—you mentioned briefly, kind of what the first responders and the first-line medical staff have to go through. With any other overdose, we have tools at our disposal to not only protect the patient but protect staff, and we don't have that with these synthetic drugs. The most common time for staff to get assaulted in the ER seemed like when patients were coming in high on these bath salts. They'd rip intubation tubes out, staff would get needle sticks, just physically beat up during this time. It's one of the scariest moments that you have in the ER because there's just no control. You know, the ER is always controlled chaos, but with this, it's just chaos. So, Nikki, how do you treat these overdose persons, the people who have overdosed then? Uh, you do your best you can to treat them symptomatically, but there's no reversal for this. So we'll try to give fluids. We'll try to sedate them, but many times they'll, um, we call it chewing through the sedation. The sedation doesn't last. So we'll think that they're um, calm and relaxed, and then we're going for another round when, mm. when the sedation wears off, which is usually pretty rapidly, if it works at all. What have you seen in the ER? Now, this was in Lancaster County where there was this spike a few weeks ago. But in Hershey, over the years, what have you seen as far as overdoses from uh, synthetics? I mean, we've seen it. I mean, everything seems to go in waves. You can tell when there's a bad batch out there because more people are coming in. Um, And then, I mean, and it's just like any other drug that people abuse. It kind of goes in waves. You get waves of bad batches of heroin, bad batches of spice, bad batches of whatever. And you know it's going to be a bad few days. Mm. Hey, Nikki, thank you very much for your call. Hey, Craig Stebbin, let me ask you, um, it's a bad batch. So do we know where this bad batch came from? Was it one person, one group of, of, of persons? Just what? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that too much. We're, we're obviously interested in, in finding the person responsible. I mean, these drug dealers, they're, they're just making profit. Um, I call them predator drug dealers. That's what they're doing. And, you know, Nikki's call, I think, illustrates the dangers here. Not, you know, these people are just trying to work in the emergency room. And uh, we owe so much to those individuals, and they're, they're at risk. We had a case, um, it was, uh, I think, in 2015, a guy just was under the influence. He just put a, a, a gun to a random stranger's head. 
Um, and the police had to fight him to arrest him. And it's just so violent and so dangerous. So we're following up on it. I mean, we work together with our drug task force, our special enforcement unit. We were combined with the city. We, we try to find all these um, uh, those responsible. And it's not just the batches. It's also when the dealers are bringing stuff in. I mean, a couple, about a year and a half ago, um, we had an individual bring 200 packets. You know, we caught them coming off the train station from New York. So it's about $4,000 worth of, of the these these packets, these individual packets. So that's another part. It's like, when is the when is the dealer bringing a big shipment in and bringing it down? So it's that combined with the, the extremely, as, as the agent said, the extremely potent batches. Mm. We'll talk more about all those things in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking in this segment of the program about synthetic marijuana, synthetic drugs. Uh, You may have seen in the news or heard here on WITF a few weeks ago about a spike in overdoses in Lancaster County. And uh, that's kind of what prompted this program and discussion and bringing some attention to this issue. Joining us, Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman and Special Agent Patrick Trainer of the DEA's Philadelphia Field Division. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-729. 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter. We are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's take another phone call from Ralph in Effort of Ralph, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, good morning, Scott. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, my question is, uh, what, what? you know, I've heard people say we can't arrest ourselves out of this problem, but you know, we got these distributors who have seem to have no, no, uh, no problem just dealing this this bad this the, the bad drugs widely, and and these people at OD are they unwilling to come forward with the dealer's name, and and what sort of penalties can we get against these dealers to cause them to flip to give their higher ups like do they think it's just a game, and and they're and when they get caught it's not that big of a deal on the um, yeah like. What, like it just it astounds me that these these guys can continue to get away with this, and that they think that the money is worth the uh, the, the the penalty, the potential penalty. Right, thank you very much for your call, uh, Craig Stebman. How about I have you first, and then uh, go to Agent Trainer. Well, uh, you know, he, he brings up an excellent point. It's a source of great frustration to all the prosecutors in Pennsylvania. Is just when you know the, the heroin dealers are, are killing more people. I think it was 4,600 last year, um, and we've got incidents like this spice. You know, our uh, we lost our mandatory minimum sentences that our legislature passed, and and so drug dealers actually the penalty is a lot less than it was before because now we're just reverting to the the guidelines. And of course, you can talk about it fairly, but you have to have a lot to get the the feds' attention. They don't have enough resources to do it all. So the, most of the drug dealers are prosecuted in state courts, and now we no longer have a mandatory minimum penalty for these predator drug dealers. I'm not talking about for the friend giving somebody some marijuana. I'm talking about the actual big-time predator drug dealers who are making tons of money off of people dying or almost dying and putting our, our medical providers at risk and our first responders and causing all kinds of other related crimes. The the penalty is much less than, than it was before. So it, it's, it's very frustrating for me, and that's one thing, you know, like the legislature to, to, to fix that. I know they've worked on it, but there's a lot of talk, and of course, you know how Harrisburg works. So we, we'd like to see more, more efficiency there and give us the tools that we need to protect our community, and, and as the caller says. It's like it's very, very frustrating for us. And, and as far as getting people to talk, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, but I can tell you that we can go up the chain a lot easier when somebody's looking at a mandatory minimum sentence of two, three, four, five years as opposed to now when they're looking at a few months in jail. It's not worth it to them because they're making so much money. So that's the other thing. You need the penalty aspect and you need the hammer over somebody's head to say I choose to talk and, and I'm and I'm sure the special agent could talk about you know the success of the, in in federal prosecutions when they have those those heavier penalties of how they can go up the chain because they've got leverage that we don't have in state court and 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 they solve all kinds of things from it. but I'll, you know he, he's he's more of the expert I did a little bit of that years ago as a special assistant but um, it, they have they have 
way more powers to, of, of a hammer to bring down on people's heads than we do. Agent Trainer, what about that? I mean, uh, when how does DA, DEA approach uh, synthetics in particular? Well, uh, again, uh, t- to your point, and certainly, Ralph, this is a great question, and and, uh, and I will say uh, that um, you know DEA is we're very successful in getting people to cooperate, and in large part that is due to the uh, uh, severity of the federal guidelines. Um, we do charge people. Um, with uh, you know delivery of a controlled substance that results in death um again that, that's the extreme situation but the mandatory minimum sentence for that starts starts at 20 years and goes up uh so that's very uh that's a very successful tool in uh uh in getting people to cooperate and further our investigations uh we have offices overseas um, and, and again, sometimes we do have the ability to take uh, to take cases um, uh, internationally where appropriate. But but to what uh, District Attorney Stedman said, one of the things that and he used an excellent term, uh, uh, predatory drug dealers, is very often with drugs like this and uh, and fentanyl, uh, we see a lot of these drugs that are being uh, ordered off the dark web, and there is no middleman. Where so essentially we see users who are ordering large amount of this over the internet, and it's getting shipped directly to their house for their personal use. So it, it, it follows a much different, uh, a much different. A framework than our traditional drug conspiracies. See, you, uh, so you, it does... you, you touched on something I wanted to follow up on. Where is it coming from? You mentioned manufactured in China, but, uh, you know, just a few years ago, it's only been illegal or at least not legal here in Pennsylvania for a few years now. It was being sold, uh, you know, in stores, in head shops, actually, even in general stores, if you could refer to them as general stores, because it would be labeled as not for human consumption consumption or potpourri or something like that. Uh, so it's only been a few years that it's been illegal. Where is it coming from? Again, we're seeing most of it come over uh, from China and the Far East. Uh, and again, and, and the, the challenge for us is, again, we, we schedule it. And, and again, uh, a precursor chemical can be changed and then it's no longer, uh, it's no longer uh, scheduled is the term that we use, making it no longer illegal. So unfortunately for us, uh, even at the, and again, this is relevant to the city, state, federal level, we are playing, uh, we are playing um, uh, catch up in, uh, in prosecuting these cases. So it, it's a bit, of a, uh, a bit of a challenge for us, but we do not see, uh, we very rarely, if ever, see domestic manufacturer of drugs such as this here. Uh, District Attorney Stedman, and I know you can't give away too much uh, an ongoing investigation, but typically uh, those who are purchasing synthetic marijuana, where are they buying it? Well, we, I mean, as he said, I think some people are buying, are getting it right from their shipped home. And, and you know, as I t- uh, we had the other guy that brought in from uh, the dealer came in from um, New York at the train station, and we intercepted him. It was a long-term investigation. Uh, and, and, you know, as far as, as it's more some of its traditional ways of, of buying it with a, a dealer and some of it is as uh, the special agent describes. But, I mean, would there be people on the street or, uh, as, as I described, you know, under the counter uh, up until a few years ago? Well, we had that. I mean, initially, this wasn't illegal in Pennsylvania, as you point out. I actually had to go to court. We went to civil court to get injunctions against these uh, these establishments that were selling this. They were selling it. It was not illegal. I couldn't prosecute anybody for it. So actually, our approach under that was really to, to A, education, and, and B, we actually got injunctions against a number of, of, of stores to, to keep them from selling it. That's all they could do is to try to try to save people. So it is a, a – he, he, you know, he, he describes very well how we, the law has to adjust. I think it was 2013 we finally, it, was, it was finally illegal in, in Pennsylvania, and it's constantly evolving, and, and we've sort of been behind this curve. Um, but, no, it's not – I don't think it's a situation where somebody's standing on the street corner selling it. But by the same token, it doesn't have the same stigma – uh, that heroin does so, um, uh, and particularly with teens and, and and young people, they don't see the danger. Whereas I think the the more veteran 
drug user, and I'm generalizing, but the veteran drug users know it. I mean, a guy actually stopped me on the street, probably in his 40s, like he, he recognized me, and he said, hey, you know, look, I've used cocaine, I, I, marijuana, I've used heroin. He said, but this stuff, he said, I'm staying away from it. He goes, the young people don't understand it. This is so bad. I mean, that's the, and, and he was, there was, you know, I'm sure he was 100% telling the truth. We have a, a question here on Twitter. If spice is, is, illegal, is as illegal as marijuana, why do people use it? Why not just use regular marijuana? Well, I, I think there's, you know, there's always that you're talking about people that are, that are using drugs and they want to get a high, and, and I think there's the potential from the synthetic um, to, to you're getting even more of a reaction, um, and, and I think that people want to replicate. Uh, what we see with users is that the people that like it and that they, they get a feeling they've never had before, and they want to replicate that. And as they use regular marijuana, they become, it does, they're not getting the same high that they got before. And a lot of times you'll see those people turn to, to a heavier drug like cocaine or into heroin or sometimes, uh, you know, the synthetic marijuana. I also understand it's cheap. Oh, uh, yeah, it's not expensive. Nope, it's about $20 per packet, I think. Yeah, so is that is that less expensive than marijuana? Uh, I might refer to the special agent. He might be able to tell you exactly the you know the the, the prices, but it's not a lot of money. And and uh, yes, in the, the prices, I mean the prices for uh, for marijuana um, are, are very cheap, and there are certainly uh, uh, varying grades of marijuana uh, that determine the price. But one of the things that we've seen a lot of is we have seen a tremendous amount of K2 and spice uh, being smuggled inside of our, uh, inside of correctional institutions. Um, again, you know, one of the things about marijuana uh, is it has a very characteristic uh, smell that pretty much everyone is familiar with uh, that makes it somewhat challenging for drug traffickers uh, to conceal and transport. You don't necessarily have that with the uh, uh, have that with K2. Um, you're going to have a very, a very potent psychoactive substance that uh, uh, that has no characteristic uh, smell or indicator uh, that law enforcement can traditionally uh, uh, pick up on. So again, we've seen uh, we've seen a lot of it, uh, a lot of it uh, smuggled into uh, uh, into prisons. Uh, so I think uh, hopefully that that might answer uh, that might answer the question that you guys received on Twitter. Agent Trainer, you know, we've talked kind of around this and touched on it a little bit, but what effect does spice have on the body? It's uh, essentially, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it, it, what it can do is basically it can, uh, because it, oh, um, because with the batch has changed so much, we don't always know. I want to go back to uh, the, the call that we got earlier. When we see um, an opioid overdose, for instance, from either a, uh, a synthetic opioid like Percocet or a drug like heroin, most opioid overdoses present themselves in a similar fashion. Respiratory, uh, uh, respiratory uh, pressure, uh, uh, so on and so forth. Um, we don't see that with, uh, um, with the uh, synthetic drugs. Normally we see uh, elevated heart rates, elevated blood pressure, unconsciousness, seizures, vomiting, hallucinations, agitation. So these are, these are kind of conflicting, uh, conflicting um, uh, things. I mean, again, most opioids are, are fairly, uh, again, present fairly, fairly similar. Uh, the synthetics do not, and that's what's so, uh, that's what's so challenging. Um, the, uh, again, we have seen people, uh, for instance, um, a uh, uh, you may have an otherwise uh, healthy 30-year-old male uh, who comes in with an elevated heart rate that might mimic uh, maybe the symptoms of a heart attack. Um, but again, it, it takes emergency room profession, you know, professionals. Um, they can't, most of them cannot screen for synthetic drugs in an emergency room setting. So the, the, uh, the effects are pretty, uh, are pretty varied, and that's what, that's what really... Uh, causes uh, so much concern for us is it addictive no i i don't uh, no it is not addictive as uh, uh, as as for instance as uh, as like uh, opioid drugs i mean people certainly could develop um an addiction to it but we don't see it having the addictive properties that some other drugs have 
Okay. I, now, I have read that there are some who feel that uh, it is addictive, but it is questionable. We have an email here that says, people just don't understand this drug. They don't understand the long-term psychosis years after use caused by the substance. Kids are at special risk for use because they aren't aware that it is lab-created and have received mixed messages about marijuana legalization in Pennsylvania. The media has controlled the narrative, and when access is increased to a substance, use rises. Kids refer to this substance as legal in the city of Lancaster. District Attorney Stedman, what about that? No, I think that's an excellent comment. It's definitely something we've been combating. Is there's, there's there's messaging out there that that marijuana is 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 not a big deal, and people are confusing, uh, blurring the debate between medical marijuana and and just uh, recreational use of marijuana, and and people forget that the marijuana of today is much more potent and much more dangerous than the marijuana of the 1960s and 70s that people kind of think of. I mean, it causes permanent brain damage. It's not a safe drug. Um, and and uh, then you've got this aspect, as I said, that, I, that comment and the person that talked to me, and I'm, I'm definitely aware of it, that, that the youth think this is no big deal um, at all. And, and it does present challenges for for you know all of us it doesn't i think for the medical community i don't think it shows up on on traditional drug testing even so that's that's no, a challenge no. for them and and uh, to just to, to diagnose it to find it and of course for us to prove it but i, I think that's there is the broader perspective here and and that that uh, the the person is right on it is that we've the discussion is sort of the the national discussion is marijuana is not a big deal when in fact it is way more dangerous than it was before and you talk to um uh, um, I'm not talking about the medical marijuana. I'm talking about just recreational use of marijuana. We, we have DUIs. You know, people are at risk when they get behind the wheel of a car, uh, and, and they're putting everybody else at risk. So there's, there's a lot at stake. Um, and, and the messaging, I think, that does contribute to increase people using K2 and synthetic substances is that, oh, what's the big deal here? It's just marijuana. Mm. Let's take a phone call from Joe in Paradise. Uh, Joe, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Joe. This is a great topic when we talk about a serious epidemic that is sweeping our country, and uh, a lot has to do with our policies, um, not only in and in, in our a way we perceive the problem. And I found in the uh, early 80s, after the Reagan administration came in, there was a great uh, desire for counties in the Midwest to do something about their drug problems within their counties, just small sheriff's departments with four or five individuals in it and unable to handle it. And the uh, task forces through the state at that time would send in people that were just not, um, just not prepared, not trained, and um, couldn't provide the service that the counties needed. And uh, so I formed a group of individuals, a small company, and we would be hired by sheriff's offices, and we would go in. We would work six to nine months, sometimes a year. And at the end of it, we'd take out 275, 150, 85 people all at once. And we would draw. We would work as high up as we possibly could with um, where we were looking at the individuals bringing it into the county and also looking at um, the major cities where this stuff came out of, or the individuals lived. Hey, so and those Joe, cities would protect those people, and uh, where, um, you know, we couldn't get assistance from, or we couldn't get assistance from the state. Um, well, Joe, let me interrupt you for a second. Were you affiliated with law enforcement? Um, I um, would make the buys, package the evidence, testify in court. Um, I knew each one of the individuals intimately. I knew their families. I went to their homes. I mean, I spent time, um, and my people spent time in, engraved in the entire culture of the county and every single individual. We weren't given, we, we would go into a county sheriff's, would say, I have a problem in my county. It's serious. I need it took care of. These are the people that are the problem. I, and I would immediately say, I'm not interested in who's the problem. You have a problem. Um, this is what um, this is the resources I'll need to handle that problem. Hey, Joe, I have a number of people I can put in. Hey, Joe, thank you very much for your call. Uh, District Attorney Stedman, I mean, is, is that a situation that's viable here in Pennsylvania? 
Well, sure. I mean, we 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 do use uh, we make undercover buys all the time, um, and that's that's sort of some of the bread and butter of what the drug task force does. And of course, we partner with the state and, and federal authorities as well. And DA has been a great partner for us in in the fight. It's just that there's not enough of them. And and um, yeah, that's one of the things that we do. Um, that's that's the the old way of doing it and, and still viable way uh, and of course as I said what ties into that is we, make, we need to make sure we have the penalties so that we can go further up up the chain when we when we have a chain that, that we can work on and and but yeah I mean he's absolutely right that's that's one of the things we do it's just there's so much of it and we're overwhelmed dealing with heroin and then you throw this on there now we've got drugs that are being invented in a lab to deal with over the past few years these are new challenges for law enforcement and for our community Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for uh, being with us today and bringing attention to this issue. Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman and Special Agent Patrick Trainer of the DEA's Philadelphia Field Division, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Hey, I want to tell you about something I'm uh, pretty excited about uh, coming up later this week. Uh, yeah, I just returned from vacation and I'm looking forward to uh, was looking forward to getting back on the air today, but uh, particularly looking forward to this Thursday. It's a Smart Talk road trip, uh, and we're going to be in a special place, the state capitol in Harrisburg on Thursday. The first part of the program on Thursday, Governor Tom Wolf will be joining us. We also uh, will get a visit from uh, Pennsylvania's uh, Treasurer Joe Torcella. Uh, a lot of other things coming up about uh, the Capitol on uh, Thursday. If you would like to attend, see the live broadcast, uh, I encourage you to go to WITF.org and you can RSVP there. Uh, Go to Smart Talk Road Trips and there's a place there to RSVP if you'd like to show up. Be a great setting to watch the broadcast. That's Thursday at the state capitol. If you have a question for the governor, we're going to take questions ahead of time and uh, during the broadcast on, uh, you know, on on cards. Just for time's sake, we won't be able to take phone calls during that program. You also can go to uh, witf.org and uh, leave a question for the governor. Actually, going to Smart Talk at witf.org may be the best way. If you have a question for uh, Governor Wolf, that's this Thursday from 9 to 10 at the state capitol. And uh, we encourage uh, everyone to come out. A great location, great setting for the program. Plus, uh, get to hear what uh, Governor Wolf has to stay, has to say, I should say. We turn now to a topic that hasn't seen much discussion since the fall of the Soviet Union. In recent decades, matters of American security have focused on terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. But as North Korea advances its nuclear program, attention is returning to the nuclear threat. The possibility of nuclear annihilation during America's post-war era elicited enough fear that it became deeply ingrained in our culture. Think duck and cover in those end-of-the-world science fiction films of the 50s. So how is the nuclear threat from North Korea contributing to national anxiety, and how will we see that manifest itself in contemporary culture? Joining us is Dan Zak, a feature writer with the Washington Post and author of the book Almighty, a book about the impact of nuclear weapons development on American society. Dan Zach, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good to be with you. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Dan, I'd like to compare the fear that Americans felt about the nuclear threat of the Soviet Union during the Cold War to that of today with North Korea. Are they similar? Or do they differ? Well, I think they're similar uh, in the emotions uh, that they uh, trigger, um, but they're certainly different in terms of the, the, the raw numbers and the strategy. I mean, during the Cold War, you had uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S., each with tens of thousands of nuclear warheads, um, you know, a height, I think, a combined total of 70,000 um, at the height of the Cold War. Uh, you know, since the end of the Cold War, we're down to about just under 15,000 total. Uh, Russia and the U.S. still have most of them. Um, but right now, instead of uh, superpower versus superpower uh, for decades, we have this kind of rogue, insular, backward nation, um, impoverished, but that has somehow attained uh, uh, nuclear power or nuclear armed power. Um, and so, you know, back in the Cold War, there were, you know, anywhere between two to five uh, nuclear-armed countries. Now we have nine. Um, so it complicates the uh, the geopolitical stability and security strategy, to say the least. Mm. 
Americans do seem to uh, be much more concerned, at least our uh, our politicians are, uh, about the threat of terrorism than they are North Korea. Is that because of 9-11 or we've heard so much about terrorism? We've seen so many examples of terrorist attacks in other countries and even here since 9-11? Yeah, I think 9-11 certainly has a lot to do with it. Even before 9-11, in fact, about nine months before, um, there was a, a report uh, 2000, January 2001 study uh, that said um, uh, terrorists, quote, will acquire weapons of mass destruction and mass disruption, and some will use them. Americans will unlikely die on American soil, possibly in large numbers. Now, nine months after that, we have 9-11. Um, but uh, when 9-11 happened, actually, Dick Cheney, his reaction to that as it was unfolding was, as fathomable as this is, it could have been so much worse if they had weapons of mass destruction. So I think uh, 9-11, which was really a kind of a crude event, um, non-nuclear obviously, uh, made people realize just how vulnerable we are. But we've been thinking about this even before 9-11, because Osama bin Laden had called uh, for a Hiroshima in the United States even before that. Why aren't Americans as concerned then? I mean, when we hear the news of, like for this weekend, when North Korea conducted another test of an ICBM, that uh, we're told that this one, uh, this test shows that they could reach the continental United States with a missile. Why aren't Americans more concerned? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons, chief among them, that it is a depressing thing to think about. It is, it is a, a, a something of such magnitude that if you were to think about it for too long, you couldn't get through your day, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, uh, you know, we've kind of pushed it out of our mental space. At the same time, you know, the Cold War has been over for 25 years. We've lost that kind of focusing agent. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we're no longer a duck and cover. Uh, my generation and, and people younger than I am, I'm 33, uh, came of age in a world uh, that did not have uh, that focal point of the Cold War. And so we've largely forgotten that these weapons exist. Now, they've come down in numbers for sure, but they definitely haven't gone away. As I said, there's nearly 15,000 of them left on the planet. Um, so I think a combination of, of uh, we're in a different era, uh, but then also nuclear weapons are very abstract. They're very classified. They're very rarefied. And there's not a whole lot an individual can do or can change about his or her life to make an impact. Contrast that with the environmental issue. You can talk about climate change as an existential crisis like nuclear weapons, but with climate change, the individual can at least change things about his and her daily life to give them kind of a feeling of agency over the problem. There's, there's not much you can change about your daily life to feel like you're having any impact on the threat of nuclear war. You know, yesterday I mentioned that uh, North Korea had another test on uh, Saturday. Yesterday, the Trump administration responded with uh, a test of shooting down some missiles. And I, I wonder whether, you know, when I saw that story, and we've done that a couple times now, whether it almost was to convey a sense of security to the American people of, yes, they can test these missiles. Yes, they can reach the continental United States. But here's what we can do. We can protect you by shooting down these missiles. What do you think about that? That's exactly right. It is, um, you know, it's often kind of uh, conveyed to the public as, as we are testing our technology to make sure that, that our response and our military is reliable in a conflict situation. But we do this routinely, whether or not North Korea is making um, uh, noises and, and, and kind of issuing threats. We regularly test um, our ICBM uh, delivery systems, our, our missiles that would carry nuclear weapons by firing them, uh, you know, dummy unarmed versions from California at places like the Marshall Islands, and we shoot them down from the Marshall Islands. Uh, so we do that routinely anyway, and that's also to send a message to Russia and to other nuclear-armed powers that we are always in fighting shape, we are always prepared to respond, and in the case of North Korea, it's to remind them that if they were to actually try to engage us in some kind of nuclear conflict, um, they would be wiped out. We have the power. Uh, any, any action in that regard from them is essentially a suicide mission, and that is what these tests are to remind them. Now, I'm going to show my age here because uh, thinking back to the Reagan administration when uh, President Reagan was uh, a big cheerleader for what was called Star Wars at the time, a missile defense system. And one of the things that was said at that time, and I think it you know, it's certainly holds true now, is that all that needs to get through is one missile, and we're still yeah. talking mass destruction. 
Yeah, exactly. And and frankly, our our missile defense systems are not a hundred percent, even in uh, you know perfect conditions. When we test our missile defense system, and we know there's a, a dummy warhead we have to take down, and we can plan for it, the success rate of that is still only fifty six percent. So you've got to think it must be lower in a real time situation where we're in kind of a fog of war and it's all very sudden. Are those um, you know is fifty six percent success rate and lower the kind of odds that we want to bank on? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. In your book, Almighty, uh, you tell the story of nuclear protesters, a house painter, a Vietnam vet, and an 82-year-old nun who were convicted for trespassing uh, at a uranium storage facility in Tennessee in 2012. Now, throughout the nuclear age, there have been protests. I mean, uh, a lot of celebrities, even members of Congress. But with North Korea bringing more attention to this issue, uh, do you foresee a day where we go back to that uh, anti-nuclear activism? You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, because I think we've had, especially in the past year or two, any number of reasons why the public should be very animated about this. Um, and I don't know what it would take to get a million people in the streets, which is what happened in 1982 in New York, the nuclear freeze movement, which was trying to put a cap on kind of uh, out-of-control defense spending uh, as the Cold War kind of reached a, a climax. Uh, you know, there were a million people mobilized in New York. Uh, I I can't envision a scenario where a million people do that today. Um, I sometimes wonder if it would take something extreme like an accident or some kind of nuclear use to remind people that this is a scenario, this is a peril that exists uh, every second of every day. And these three people I wrote about in this book who broke into this nuclear weapons facility in Tennessee, a facility that was nicknamed, that is nicknamed, the Fort Knox of uranium, if three unarmed uh, senior citizens, peace activists, can breach what is allegedly one of the most secure facilities on the planet in a country like the United States, which prides itself on its national security, you know, what is is the situation like in these 24 other countries that have stockpiles of bomb usable material. So it's a threat that's worth thinking about. Yes, in terms of an adversary like North Korea, but also in terms of the adversary of ourselves. Are we 100% with our own security? Um, And the answer, uh, I would argue, um, and that I detail in my book, is no. Hmm. And, you know, you're right, what you said earlier about how depressing it is to think about, but there are so many possibilities out there. And, you know, we when we hear about terrorism in the United States today, we're often told that uh, the rogue warriors, the rogue terrorists, uh, the, the lone wolves, if you will, are the more danger are more dangerous in this country than, say, a group of, um, you know, ISIS-sponsored uh, terrorists, maybe people inspired by ISIS. Same thing with nuclear weapons. It would seem that, uh, okay, yes, we have a nuclear, we have North Korea flexing its muscles, but it's it seems like there would be even a better possibility uh, that, uh, you know, a terrorist, a rogue group could get their hands on nuclear material, maybe make a dirty bomb where they use nuclear material, but use, um, you know, normal weapons to explode uh, or to, you know, set that off. What about that? Yeah, I, the probability of a nuclear terrorist attack is, is, I think, often overstated. But the consequences aren't. I mean, even if the the, possi- the probability is vanishingly small, the consequences are so dire that we need to be thinking about it. Now, you know, most of our nuclear history, our nuclear identity, has been wrapped up in this uh, notion of nuclear deterrence, that uh, we have amassed this arsenal, as the Soviet Union and now Russia has and other nuclear-armed countries, um, in order to deter uh, attacks, to deter major power global war. Um, because when it comes down to it, a nation-state wants to survive. And if it knows that a certain action would imperil its survival, it will not act. That notion crumbles when you talk about uh, terrorists, especially suicidal terrorists, who don't worry about surviving. Um, So that complicates the notion of nuclear deterrence. Now, again, the probability of a nuclear terrorist attack is, is very low. If if a, if a, a terrorist were to acquire an actual nuclear warhead, you know, odds are they're not going to be able to figure out how to detonate it. These are sophisticated devices that are only designed to go off um, when they're supposed to. 
Now, the, you mentioned dirty bomb, and that is a much more conceivable scenario. Uh, in fact, that is what former Secretary of Defense William Perry is uh, chiefly concerned about, that a terrorist group uh, only needs steal a bit of radiological material, whether it's fissile material or not, um, to uh, marry it to a conventional explosive and um, do some damage. And not just physical damage, the damage would be psychological, economical, um, and would kind of uh, propagate an intense amount of fear. Um, so I think that's more the concern is the dirty bomb, the conventional explosive with some kind of radiological material grafted to it. When you wrote about um, these three, as you said, uh, older Americans who broke into uh, the uranium storage facility in Tennessee in 2012, uh, I mean, did that send a message that uh, we in this country needed to upgrade security so that a you know if a regular citizen can walk in and do this, that a terrorist can't? Yeah, I mean that was a an enormous wake up call. It was also a huge embarrassment for the U.S. government. Um, Congress held, I think, four different hearings on this uh, incident um, and, you know, of course, did their uh, normal kind of theatrical show of we're appalled, what if these people, what if this wasn't an 82-year-old Catholic nun and instead was al-Qaeda um, and, and they had had as much uninterrupted time on that site as these three peace activists was. Um, and, and congressmen even said, thank God it was peace activists. Thank God it was a nun who got in there, um, because they revealed the holes in our security. Now, that, that, that was partly their intent. I think they wanted to call out what they would call the, the false idol of national security. But there have been improvements at this site and uh, at other sites uh, this, because when it comes down to it, um, the building they got up to, the building they defaced with biblical messages and human blood um, as a statement, that building uh, is thought to be in the biggest stockpile of nuclear fissile material on the planet. Um, and you could argue that it, no one should be able to get up and touch it. Um, so you'd have to think that um, the millions of dollars that have been spent on security since then um, have made it uh, more secure. But I would argue that if human beings are involved, um, nothing is 100%. Mm. You know, we are frail, feeble creatures, even at our best. Um, and we've made these weapons that are godlike in their power, but we don't have a godlike control of them. Dan Zak is a feature writer with Washington Posts and author of Almighty, a book about the impact of nuclear weapons development on American society. Dan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, you probably heard about that tuk-tuk driver in uh, Lancaster. Yes, what is tuk-tuk? Well, you'll get to hear about that uh, tomorrow on the program, so be sure to tune in. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.